From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Hey, Mick. Steve King here. I understand that uh, you're putting a stake through the heart of postmortem, yeah. your podcast that's been running for, I don't know how long, a long time. I think before your hair was all white. Anyway. I wish you the best. You're my best collaborator, uh, longtime friend, buddy, uh, workmate. We've done some fabulous things together, and uh, I wish you all the best and have a great time with your last podcast. Bye bye. We wanted to say farewell to Postmortem, uh, one of our all-time favorite podcasts. It's been such a pleasure getting to know Mick and Joe and the rest of the team at Postmortem. We're heartbroken, though, that it's leaving. Don't do it. Come on, stick around, please. If, at the very least, come back for just like a bonus episode once every year or two. Anyways, we love you guys, and thanks for all that you do for horror and the horror family. We're going to miss you. Hi, Mick. Tom Holland here. Thank you for being you. Introducing me to Richard Matheson on Amazing Stories, casting me in the stand for all that you've done for postmortem and horror and keeping the community connected, Masters of Horror, the dinners, everything. Thank you so much, Mick Garris. Hi there. I just wanted to say thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of the postmortem family. It was one of my favorite podcast experiences. And as a longtime listener and fan, I learned something from all of your guests and from you that helped me as a filmmaker. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart and sending you lots of love. Hey there, Mick. This is Edgar Wright speaking all the way from London town in old Soho, no less. Uh, I just wanted to say, have a very happy final episode. I'm sorry I can't be there to um, be part of the post-mortem on post-mortem, but what an absolute treat you've left with all the episodes you've done so far, and I was very proud to be one of the guests. So have a blast tonight at the Egyptian, and miss you all. Mwah! But we are there in spirit. Thank you, Mick, for everything that you do to inspire, entertain, and bring us horror masters together. You, sir, truly are a master of horror yourself. Yes, from the nightmare-inducing films that you make or from being the Professor Xavier of the horror community, getting all of us horror directors together, getting us onto your post-mortem show and asking us the tough questions and making horror history with it. We don't know where you're going next, Mick, but they're lucky to have you. We love you a lot and hope you have a fabulous night. And Joe, we know where you're going. See you on set, sir. Bye. Bye.
Hello, everyone. Matt Frewer here. I'm sorry I can't join you tonight. I, uh, I'm under lockdown here in the wilds of Canada. We're so far behind the U.S. on everything. This one's for the Spanish flu. No one's told them that World War II is over. Anyway, I just wanted to say lots of love and luck to my favorite Egyptian, King Mick. He's my favorite pharaoh. Hello to Mick, Joe, and the postmortem crew. Uh, Parker Finn here. Um, just want to say huge congratulations on the culmination of such an amazing podcast. Um, I would have loved to have been there in person, but uh, I'm out here on the East Coast um, getting up to something scary. Um, but anyways, I just want to say, you know, thank you for being such a vital voice in the genre and for everything you do to champion filmmakers. And Mick, you're a true master of horror. believe that Mick Garris doesn't smoke weed? With hair like that, I thought for sure this guy smokes weed, but nope, totally straight, even a vegan. Mick Garris, your podcast has been the best horror podcast on the planet. Going out on top is a bold move. Congratulations, sir, on everything you've accomplished. Congratulations to you too, Joe Russo, producer extraordinaire. You guys made an incredible team. Hey all, it's Stephen Weber here, uh, and I just want to thank, along with everybody here tonight and beyond, Mick Garris, genius filmmaker and great guy, and his redoubtable sidekick, Joe Russo, for the hundreds of amazing episodes of Postmortem, which is an essential part of my podcast diet. Um, two great guys, and um, it's been a pleasure listening, learning, and loving all you do and all you know. Um, can't wait for more. Mwah! Red Rob. Hi Mick, Reese Shearsmith here, just sending a brief hello and goodbye to the post-mortem podcast. I can't believe you've finally arrived at the last episode ever. It's um, very sad to see it go, but um, what an amazing legacy of interviews you've left us all to enjoy. Monster kids like myself have thrilled and enjoyed all of your guests over the years, and I was incredibly proud to be part of the show when you asked me to be on as one of your guests. I couldn't believe you even knew that my, my work existed, so it was a real treat and honor to be part of that and get to know you. Um, I hope you have a great final episode. It's endings for all of us at the moment. I'm filming my last series of Inside Number Nine. We've got to series nine, and it feels a poetic point at which to stop. Um, your podcast could have gone on forever, but uh, I, I understand that it's there's got to be a cutoff point at some point, and I'm sure you'll go on to do many, many other wonderful things connected to the horror world for us. You are, of course, the Zelig of horror, and have been at all of the major horror moments in cinema, it seems, for the last 50 years. Incredible body of work that you've been part of somehow. I think you're a time traveller, a monstrous time traveller uh, in the best way. Okay, have a great night. Speak to you soon. Bye. Hiya, Mick. Congratulations on your podcast. It's been fun. It's been interesting. It's been everything a good podcast should be. Very sorry I can't be with you tonight. Hi, Joe. Um, I'm still John Landis, and con really, congratulations. Hi, Mick. Hi, everyone. It's Barbara Crampton here. I wish I could be there tonight for your big send-off for postmortem, your last episode. I'm at a wedding, and I'd be there if I could. Congratulations. I mean... Listen, I know we're here to talk about the podcast and give you a send off, but it's just not enough to just talk about that because you are a legend and you're a friend to everyone in the business. And with everything you've done, there's so many filmmakers that I know that know you 
and have talked about how you've offered help and guidance and aid to them. And you're like our godfather. So I have to talk about that. That's amazing. You started the Masters of Horror Dinners. On your show, uh, you're like the Johnny Carson of podcasters because it's never about you. It's always about the person you're talking to and what makes them tick and illuminating who they are for your listeners and for yourself and for them, you know, you know you're just amazing. I love you. Congratulations on your last show. And I know you have other things in the works. You have other things you're doing and I can't wait to hear more about them. Much love to you and to Joe Russo, who was helping you with the show recently and to your wonderful engineer and to your wife, Cynthia, and everyone who knows you, to know you is to love you. So we have a lot to be thankful for for you. I appreciate you. Have a good evening. Recording live from the American Cinematheque at the beautiful Egyptian Theater in Hollywood, California, you are listening to the final episode of Postmortem, and now here's your host, Mick Garris. Wow. Is it an open casket viewing? <laughs> this is amazing. And it's just a testament to the big hearts in this genre in which we are all involved and that we have a passion for. And what's great about what I found out when we started doing the Masters of Horror dinner is how much love they share with one another. How we don't compete against each other, we root for each other's success. And that's not something you find, uh, as a matter of fact, in Hollywood. But the fact that there are so many of you here, first of all, just bowls me over. But secondly, it, it again is a testament to all the wonderful people who help make this repository of, of interviews something historical and, and important. And it'll always be there. You know, we did over 180 interviews, plus the AMA episodes. And it's all there. It's going to be there for as long as you like. And I feel like calling mission accomplished on doing seven years of these conversations with people who are the best and brightest in the genre. And some of my closest friends are filmmakers within the genre. And they're here with me tonight to be able to share the stage and conversation, talk about how we met, our love for the genre. And so I'd like to call them up to the stage. Tommy McLaughlin. Mike Flanagan. Joe Dante. Bill Malone. Axel Carolyn. And Ernest Dickerson. Sort of like the dinners, if there were a bomb dropped here, there'd never be another good horror movie. <laughs> so I, I just want to really express my thanks, first of all, to the Cinematheque and to Beyond Fest, to Grant and to Christian and Chris and, and everybody involved, uh, and Lyric, who's here tonight, for giving space to the underdogs. You know, our genre is not the mainstream. Right across the street, at the Chinese, Steven Spielberg and Bradley Cooper are talking about a Netflix movie at the Chinese theater. So, but Google gobble one of us, right? We are, are bound together. So, Tommy, I've known you since the early 80s. And, and just, it's always been this shared passion. We've written together, we've worked together, we've been friends for so long. Tell me about 
how it felt when you first got to do that first horror movie? Well, um, it was a long road, as it is with anybody trying to break in and you have a low-budget you know, film that you want to make. At that time, it was all slasher. You know, you go to meetings and they go, well, this is very nice, this gothic horror thing, but we're interested in, you know, girls that can get killed, guy in some sort of thing to cover his face, four someplace. So, you know, it's like almost six years before I got one dark night off and going. And it ended up being um, Mormon businessmen who needed a tax write-off. So I'm up there in Provo, you know, showing slides and stuff, had the music from Amityville, trying to, you know, sell them on it, goes, great, can you do it in three weeks? And thank God I had storyboarded it, so I was ready to go. And it was a hell of an experience, you know, to, to actually finally be making a movie. What's so great is to have been around to watch how all of these careers have, have just blossomed over the years and to have known so many of you for so long. Mike, I met you, you screened Gerald's Game for me. And you know, that was a movie I really wanted to make, but I thought if somebody else is gonna make it, let it be Mike Flanagan. And you killed it. And just from that very first, very generous invitation, to come see your movie and see someone else who really got the Stephen King personality and understood what that was all about in Gerald's Game was just profound for me. And just the friendship, you've been on the show maybe more than anybody else has. And I just so appreciate being along for the ride that you're taking and to see everything that's happened to you. Well, that screening of Gerald's Game, you and Cynthia were actually the first people to see that movie. Uh, that didn't work on the film. Um, I remember that very, very vividly, and I remember being very nervous uh, to show you the movie because I, I knew your history with it. Well, I'm very but, intimidating. Well, you are. You're very intimidating. But to me, you've, you very much were intimidating, and, and one of the reasons for that is one of the things that made me fall in love with Stephen King was when I watched The Stand uh, for the very first time, and I recorded it, pausing to try to cut out the commercials so that when I revisited it, I could, I could play it straight through, and I wore those tapes out completely. Um, and so it was an honor that you wanted to see this movie, and I felt at first it's, okay, I'm, I'm showing this to a filmmaker who I admire a great deal, uh, but after we discussed the movie for just a little bit on the way out, um, I, I remember thinking, wow, I feel like I just made a friend. Yeah. which was not anything I expected to happen. Uh, I felt that yeah. too, and I don't make friends quickly like that, but we had so much in common, and the bond that really brought us together happened to be Stephen King, which was pretty amazing. And now you're catching up to me in the number of King adaptations. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you and I have known each other a really long time as well, and you were in my first short film, playing a, a guy working at a radio shack. You mean the one that Harlan Ellison said that you should drop in the river? Yeah, <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> so I did. Um, but, uh, but watching you work, you know, I'd seen Piranha before we met, and I met you, I think, at a screening party for Piranha. And it was the best New World picture ever made at that time. It was just phenomenal. And then I started working special publicity at Avco Embassy, and I was so lucky to have, to be there at the time of you and David Cronenberg and John Carpenter, and to watch you shoot The Howling, this seminal movie, and you gave me a line. And it was an amazing experience, but tell me about that transition from the Corman School into a wider reach that happened with The Howling. Well, it's not something you plan. Uh, it, just, it just happened, and I've, I've known Mick through several haircuts. And, uh, and, but I haven't uh, had that many. And, and, a, and a, a different wife, and you know, he's, he's, we've had a long road together. Um, but when we first started, we were just starting out, and uh, I, I was just happy to be working. I never thought I would ever work for a movie studio before. I was working for AFCO Embassy and Roger Corman. I mean, this was pretty low-rent stuff. Uh, and one thing led to another, and Mick was somehow always there. You know, no matter, no matter where I went or what I did, Mick was there. 
and I, I watched his ascension from uh, a publicist, basically, I think you were with the beginning when I met you, uh, into, into a filmmaker. And, uh, and, and obviously now a, a major podcaster, which if you'd asked me about podcasts years ago, I would have said, podcasts, I don't even drive. I would never listen to a podcast. And now I have my own podcast, probably because he did his. Uh, and so it's been, uh, it's, been, it's been quite a ride with Mick. Bill, I met you when you were making masks for Don Post Studios, including Star Wars masks, and I was working in a converted doctor's office that was the Star Wars Productions office. Right, we were trying to get the license to the Star Wars characters because nobody had ever heard of this film, and we got this brochure, and I said, this is, this is I, I don't know if this movie's any good, but these characters are great, we can sell the shit out of them. So uh, we had to go and go and see uh, you and uh, Charlie Lippin and Charlie Lippincott, Lippincott. Yeah. yeah, and then we became friends, and we lived near each other, which kind of helped. Used to run by my house all the time. And exactly, <laughs> but I also was able to watch you from the time you had made your first feature film, and then when you did Creature, and then uh, the the remake of House on Haunted Hill, and just see this this progression that's one of the exciting things about being in this genre in this town is meeting these creative people because we just get to know each other we we meet at film festivals or conventions or any number of things and we have so much in common that starting those dinners seemed like an obvious thing to do where it's just you know it's it could be the masters of shoe sales, but it happens to be people who make horror movies. And yeah. the idea that we can just get together and blow off steam and share a meal, and it's not necessarily talking about work, but it's just we have shared interests, shared backgrounds, and it's something kind of magical. And Axel, it was so great to have you a part of it. You know, and we first met at the Brussels International uh, Film Festival, Fantastic Film Festival and you were a journalist. And again, watching you go from journalist, genre journalist at that, into a really well-established film and television writer and director, is it's thrilling to watch someone you care about achieve a level of success and then keep building upon it. So tell me about that transition from journalist to filmmaker. Well, we met, I think, 18 or 19 years ago, which seems much shorter than it actually is. It's a little bit crazy, but yeah, I was, I was writing eight. for Fangoria at the time, and I was going to this festival every year, and I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew it had to be, I wanted to make horror movies. I didn't know if it was going to be writing or directing or something else, but I, I wanted to make horror movies, and so anytime I had the chance to speak to a filmmaker I admired, I would take that chance and set up an interview and then go, I want to be a filmmaker, and sometimes some people were kind enough to spend time telling me more about how they got there and what I could do. And you were one of the people who very kindly offered to, you know, spend an hour um, talking at the festival, chatting with me, and then that developed into a friendship, which was wonderful. It, what's interesting is how geographically close everybody is. Our homes are within a very narrow radius of one another. Well, except Bill Malone just moved out to <laughs> West Conchahawken, New Jersey or someplace. You're going you're gonna to hold that against me, I know. <laughs> no, he moved to a, a, a castle, so that's worth it. Uh, Ernest, when you and I first met, it was on a set where Jada Pinkett was covered in blood. I came out to visit Demon Knight, and it was so great to watch you. You're obviously this student, not just of horror films, but especially of horror films, your knowledge as a DP of people like Mario Bava and the use of color and style and camera movement and the like. And it really was perfect for a Tales from the Crypt adaptation. But tell me about that experience, because you'd done your work with Spike Lee, but you had horror in your heart. Yeah, um, Demon Knight was my third film. And uh, I was happy to do a horror film. I was looking for something. I was looking for a horror film. And, um, and I just happened to bump into Gil Adler and Alan Katz, and uh, they brought me on to do uh, Demonite. And uh, you know, it was a great, it was a great, uh, a great team, a great uh, 
good producers, you know, really good producers, you know, a lot of support. So um, uh, we had a ball. We had a ball doing it. Yeah, because I, I met you because I was doing a Tales from the Crypt, mm -hmm. and they wanted me to visit your set to show how it can be done. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, it was, um, I'm proud of it, and I'm, I'm happy to see that, uh, that it still has a fan base, you know, to this yeah. day. Yes. Yeah. We love it. Thank you. Well, there's something about horror cinema that makes me feel like calling it renegade cinema. It's, we may be in a gutter, but it's a really wonderful gutter that, that it's, it's easy to be good in a gutter. But, but seriously, it is, it's rude. It's intended to be rude. And I think the people who love it and the people who make it spend their youths as outsiders. And Tommy, did you feel like an outsider? I mean, you were in a band when you were a teenager, as well as I was and as Bill was. But um, I won't leave it alone, obviously. He's still in a band, yeah. But uh, did you feel that sense of being an outsider and that the, the monsters brought you peace? Yeah. Um, I wasn't crazy about it. I loved uh, putting salt on snails or using magnifying glass to fry ants, but that was, again, part of boyhood. Yeah, I, I was kind of thrown into it in a couple of different ways. One, I felt like a freak. Obviously, I felt like the monsters in Universal I could identify with. Um, then I had a very traumatic thing happen when I was 11. My mother had a breakdown, so she suddenly became somebody else. So that was a whole other world to kind of deal with that understanding of, you know, losing your mother but not losing your mother. And it just, I kept gravitating towards the horror, you know, and the, obviously, Edgar Allan Poe poetry, uh, I, that was the most interesting thing. And I was writing about, you know, at 13, about the love I lost, and now I plunged my knife into, you know, I just really went all the way with it. But it, you know, rock and roll kind of took me away from that for a while, and then, you know, went back as uh, soon as I went down into the catacombs in Paris and said, there's an idea in here. So, Mike, we're all choosing to work in the horror genre. There are a lot of people who see it as a stepping stone to going on to mainstream films. But even when you get the chance to do big studio movies, as you have, they're in the genre. It's a choice. Tell me about that choice, uh, what it is about exploring the depths of our fears that appeals to you as a storyteller. I, I feel incredibly lucky to work in horror. You know, I, I, I don't view it at all as a stepping stone to anything. It, it's, I think the genre endures um, because the first thing we all feel, one of the, the, the first emotions that connects all of us as a species is being afraid. It's one of the first things we learn. Um, and the thing that horror did for me growing up was it gave me a chance to grow my bravery a little bit at a time in these controlled environments. Um, it, it was cathartic, but it was also an exercise in courage. And I was a kid who was scared of everything. I was scared of interacting with adults and with kids and, and was scared of my own shadow. I was scared of talking in front of people. But the bravery that I would glean by making it through a scary scene or a scary movie or a scary book, I could carry that out with me and I could apply that to real life. And, and so in a lot of ways, I think the genre saved me um, and made me able to function. Uh, and the, the other thing too is, as scary as the, it might be to watch, the people who make horror, the people who show up every day and kind of gaze into that abyss and, and are are happy to dissect themselves and human nature and that darkness and put it up there, are like the nicest fucking people in the business. <laughs> and some of the most well-adjusted, kind, empathetic people. So yeah, I, I'm very lucky, very lucky to work in horror. And, and while you know, there's always that kind of thing you get from studios that are like, why don't you come over here and try something else, try something different? You know, I, I never want to leave. I always want to, it's home. Yeah, I remember Danny Elfman once saying when he got the Saturn Award from the Science Fiction Academy that it meant way more to him than the Oscar that he won. Yeah. So 
I don't know if I believe him or not, but, <laughs> but I'd like to. So Joe, your childhood, you had childhood illness that kept you from doing a lot of what kids were doing outside and playing and the like. And so you saw a lot of television, you watched a lot of movies on television because of that, and you, you have this encyclopedic knowledge about film in general, but horror in specific. Was that always something you wanted to pursue? I know you're a cartoonist, a very talented artist as well. Did you want to make cartoons? Did you want to make horror movies? Did you want to do both? Well, I, I wanted to be a cartoonist, but uh, that was just because I was crazy about comic books and cartoons. But when I got polio, uh, that sort of put a crimp in a lot of things, like going to school, for one thing. Uh, also, tragically, going to Saturday matinees, which I missed all the movies that came out in 1954, which turned out was a pretty major year for horror movies. Uh, and, I, and I was an atomic fear kid. I mean, I was, uh, I, we were always afraid the bomb was gonna drop, and uh, the appeal of, of those movies to us was that we were uh, dealing with fears of, of death, fears that, that children aren't really supposed to have, uh, although now in various places in the world, unfortunately, they are having them uh, in spades. And uh, that was always one of the reasons that I would insist on going to movies that gave me nightmares. And my parents would say, well, you're having a nightmare. Why do you go to these movies if they give you nightmares? And I said, I, I don't know. I just have to. I have to see these movies. I was, I was, I was addicted, basically. Uh, and it was very meaningful to me. And when it came time to actually make movies myself, I was lucky in that I was allowed to do what was then a, a very commercial genre, uh, horror films, which, which many young filmmakers use as their entry point, uh, largely because most horror movies make money the first weekend because there's such a huge audience of people who like horror films. Now, if you spend a lot of money on them, uh, there's, there might not be a third weekend, so you can't spend a lot of money, but you can make your mark, as we've discovered with a whole lot of people that we, whose work we love, who all started out making a horror film that got them noticed. And uh, as Mike pointed out, many of them decided to continue uh, with the genre because A, they liked it, and B, they were good at it. And C, that was all anybody thought they could do, <laughs> which is why many of us got typed. Bill, do you consider it a horror jail? Because it is sometimes very difficult to get outside the genre once you have some success within the horror genre. It's hard to get out of it. You know, I certainly experience it, although I love the genre and I'm happy with my cell. Um, but it can certainly be limiting in certain ways for some people in their career pursuits. Have you found that to be the case? Well, yeah, I mean, actually, one event that happened to me is I was at a major talent agency and told them that I really wanted to do horror films. I was booted out the door immediately. And, you know, and this was actually after I'd had, you know, some, some, some good success in it, you know, and, and, uh, and I said, no, you wait, horror is going to be the deal, and here it is, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Horror I always mean, comes back, I mean, even when it, it fades a little bit, it always comes it back, always because comes it's back. not reliant on budget and movie star. But look, to me, horror, there's another element to it, which is beauty. I think some of the most beautiful films ever shot are horror films. I mean, if you look at like it, the Val Luton pictures and stuff, you know, I can watch, I walked with a zombie over and over again. That thing is just, it's an amazing film, you know, and horror done right is just beautiful. It's, a, it's an amazing experience and, and speaks to the heart, I think. Axel, what are the elements of a horror film that really hook you? What are some of your favorite films and why, you know, is it, the visuals, is it the build of tension, is it the performances on the edge of fear? What are the things that really hook you? I think the visual side of it is a big part of it. Like Bill said, I like beauty. I think that beauty and horror is wonderful, whether it's visual, whether it's the emotions that it evokes. I love the fact that you can use horror to express all kinds of um, deeper emotions that if you just express them in a drama would feel very depressing or very twee. So I, I, always, I always feel like if you can scare somebody, that's wonderful, but if you can make them cry, that's even better. Um, those are 
elements I love. I like being transported into a slightly different world. I've always had a preference for gothic movies and for, you know, I grew up with Hammer movies and, and the, the kind of dark castles and, and, and mist and vampires is, is always what appeals to me the most. But um, yeah, I don't know. I grew up drawing skeletons and ghosts everywhere. I was obsessed with ghosts and skeletons and skeletons and ghosts. And I, I think that in some weird way, that's how I made sense of the world. Like I was, I was kind of a lonely kid and I remember losing my grandma very early. We weren't very close, but what really stuck was the fact that I came to terms with the fact that she was gone by thinking, well, now she's probably a little ghost and she can creep around and haunt whoever she wants and that sounds pretty good. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and so I, I, I guess somehow my understanding of life and death is tied to horror somehow. Well, Ernest, of all of us up here, you're the one who started a career as a director of photography. So imagery is really important to you. And as I said, you're quite an academic when it comes to the history of horror and particular visual horror and especially Italian horror. But tell me about your thoughts in creating the atmosphere for a horror film pictorially. Well, one of the things that I love about um, not just horror, but science fiction as well, you know, the Cinefantastique, I'm a big fan of fantastic cinema. And um, it taps into our dreams. You know, it's really, it's really, uh, the, the perfect surrealist cinema that's, that's, that's happening out there right now. But it's able, it gives us the, the ability to find images that really tap into our dreams and hit us in a, in a very fundamental, very fundamental place. And uh, hunting that down, finding those images, you know, put, for me, the most fun is putting a show together, putting a film together, and trying to, you know, find those images. My, my mantra in life is that creation is a patient search. You know, and for me, finding those images that work in a story to, uh, to, to get across the ideas or the feelings that we want them to, you know, to exploring that and finding that to me is uh, it's a lot of fun, you know. I, I think most of us as filmmakers, we haven't grown up. We still tap into the, 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 the child in all of us. We, there is an element of play. Uh, as hard as filmmaking is, uh, there's an element of fun to it, yeah. You, you, you realize that afterwards, after the film is done. <laughs> after while you're shooting it, no, days. but after it's done and you pulled it off, then you, know, you realize, okay, yeah, I had a good time doing that because I want to do another one. So. Well, I'm getting the signal that it's time to wrap up this segment of the, of the show, but I just want to thank everybody here, not just for being my friends, but for being my influences and for participating in this world, this genre that means so much to me because I've always felt like an outsider. I still feel like an outsider. And I like that feeling to a certain degree. And there are times when I don't. But your work and your friendship has been such a powerful part of my life. And I think the greatest thing about the Postmortem Podcast is that we've been able to talk in a way that people feel free to open up and talk about the process and the emotional resonance that comes behind it because I think more than any other genre, the emotional resonance behind deeply rooted fears, not the external jump and boo fears, but the kind that really means something to you that you take out of the theater after the credits roll. It's really important stuff and it's, it's been my life, it's been my career, and you guys are all such an important part of that and I just wanna thank you for being there. Well, Mick, I want to thank, thank you, you for being such a good friend all these years to all of us. And obviously, so many of our guests who've been on the show are here in the audience, too. And I want to thank each and every one of you. But we're going to do live AMA, Ask Mick Anything questions here for the last half of the show. So again, I can't thank my guests enough. They're friends, they're brilliant artists, and they're just wonderful people. So thank you for making this happen. Thanks, thank man. You, man.
let me bring to the stage my partner in crime, producer Joe Russo, also known as Pizza Joe. I would also like to introduce the rest of our crew, our sound engineer, Christopher Price. Hello. John Holland, our graphic designer. Jeff Gelb, our announcer. And Bill Burney, who composed the score and was in Horse Feathers with me back in the 70s. He composed the film. But Joe, thank you, my friend. For seven years, Joe is the reason the podcast happened. I never planned on doing a podcast, right, Joe? He, he did not. I, uh, I twisted his arm. <laughs> not that hard, though. No, it wasn't. No, uh, no it was... Um, I went to a party. As one does. As one does, a housewarming party. And I met a podcast executive. And, you know, as someone who works in the film world, I get pitched a lot of ideas, like probably you do too. Uh, so I felt I had some karma built up. Uh, and so I pitched him a podcast. And he said, if you can bring Nick in, uh, you know, I think we'll do it. And then... Then we had a meeting with Norm Pattis, who was the head of Podcast One. He had been the owner of Westwood One, which was one of the biggest radio syndicators in, in America, if not the biggest. And in fact, Jeff Gelb used to do a show for him. But um, uh, Norm was kind of pitching their company to me. Podcast One was the, is the biggest podcaster in the world. And they're pitching me saying, you know, Adam Carolla makes seven and a half million dollars a year from his podcast. We did not make seven and a half million dollars <laughs> a year. <laughs> the year we were with Podcast One, I personally made $500. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> it was a highly lucrative uh, project. This, this <laughs> Obviously, rolling in it, but not money, but it, yeah. But that's, yeah, but that's how it, that's how it started, and, uh, and we're so happy to end it with Dread Central. Yeah. Uh, they've been great partners. Yeah, give it up for Dread. They've been amazing Thank partners you, Patrick, for the last three and years. Thank you, Ulyssa, and everybody from Dread who've been so supportive all the way through. It's really been great. And, and you know, Joe says the question he gets asked the most is, is Mick dying? <laughs> no. <laughs> no more than I was yesterday. But... You know, I, I just feel like, like we said, mission accomplished. We've done seven years of this, and it's really a great experience, and we built up such a library of things that I think are going to be important in the future as well as the present. And it's, it's really great to have had the cooperation of all these really terrific minds and, and talents to, to leave something like that behind. And now, you know, I have a... a, a pilot that I've written based on a Stephen King project that uh, we've got a couple actors attached to that once the avalanche of projects in the wake of the uh, strikes ending it, it clears up a bit, we'll be out with. Bob Barker and I have written a pilot together that is also promising, got a feature out there. So I just am going to be turning my attention to making movies and television. And I thank you. I love moderating. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be asked by Beyond Fest and Cinematheque to moderate some of their conversations. We had a memorable one with Roger Corman a couple of months ago. We're, we're having a memorable one tonight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's that. Thanks, yeah. Beyond Fest. Thanks, Cinematheque. Yeah. So, and I'm prattling on when we should be getting to the AA. Yes. So, so uh, if people are fans of the show, I assume some of you are, uh, you've probably heard our Ask Mick Anythings where we've let... Uh, our fans ask questions of Mick over the last five years. Uh, yeah. But tonight, we have a lot of our past guests here, and Mick asked them questions last time, so we're going to let them ask Mick questions tonight. So uh, I asked them to do a little homework and come up with some questions, so I hope some of them do. And uh, Chris Price, our engineer, is going to run around with Mike. So. Who wants to go first? This always Lin Shay. Lin Shay. The knew beautiful Lin Shay. Up, up there. Lin Shay's a, a on the aisle. There you go. Three, three-time guest. 
I think. Three time guest. So this will be your fourth appearance on Postmortem. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. And Mick, you are, you know, you are a legend. It is totally true. And I feel I was in on the very beginning. I'll never forget, we did Critters, the first Critters that was really Well, the amazing. second Critters. <laughs> no, this was the first one. Oh, first this is the second one. No, you're first right, two. you're right. I get mixed up. It was my first feature as a It director. was his first feature, yeah. the second Critters story, but um, it was an incredible experience. My question is very mundane, but if you couldn't be a filmmaker and you couldn't be a writer and you couldn't be a director, what passion do you have that is separate from those things that you would pursue? Suicide. <laughs> you know what? I swear to you, I thought that's what he's going to say. I swear to you. I, I was going to go, okay, well, I hope not. <laughs> no. <laughs> to many, 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 many more adventures. Oh, thank you. I'm just lucky to have been able to make a career telling stories. Thank you. And Thank Lynn, you, you've been such an important part of this. Thank you so much. Who, who's next? Who's next? Come on. Pat Casey. Ladies and gentlemen, Pat Casey. Yes, the screenwriter. Co-writer of Violent Night and Sonic the Hedgehog. Hi. Uh, Mick, it's, you had so many great luminaries on your show, I feel silly that I was even a guest. Uh, but it was a great honor. I guess, I guess twice. That's true, because twice. <laughs> so this is my third appearance. Your third appearance. But Mick, you've had such a long career, and like as someone who is, uh, I'll be generous and say a film, young filmmaker, when really maybe it's a little bit of a middle filmmaker myself, uh, what, what is the key to that kind of career longevity? I mean, decades and decades and sticking around and continuing to make great work. Well, I think it's flexibility, but also it's a passion. You have to really love it. and. As for me, I can only speak for myself, but I don't, I've never done it for the money. Um, I've always done stories that I've wanted to tell, whether they're my own stories or somebody else's, but it's all, only attaching myself to something I can love, something that I'd be willing to spend a year making to watch for 90 minutes. And I, I think it's all about passion and it's all about stories and it's all about people it's characters that are more than just cardboard shells they are seen from the inside out which is as you know as a screenwriter and one of my favorite things is writing different characters because all of them are an expression of you and the passion and the love of writing those characters and bringing them at least to the page if not to the screen is what keeps me going. Whenever I come to a part where I'm not sure where the story's gonna go, I just get into the characters and they lead me. I start writing a scene between characters and they take me where the story's gonna go. All right, thank you, Mick. Thank, uh, you, thank you for all these years of podcasts. Oh, thank, thank you, you. Pat. Here's Dennis. one over here, Chris. Dennis and Kevin, are we, or both, yes. Dennis Widmeyer and Kevin, Kevin Kolsch. Hello, hello. Hi, guys. There's two of us, so you'll get two questions right now. I'll go first. Uh, you're obviously a big Stephen King fan, as we all are. Uh, what is a story or a novel uh, that you would have loved to have done that got away from you? Like one Gerald's you Game. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Give us another one. One more. Yeah. Well, you know, what's amazing is, of course, I've read everything that he's written, but I realize I've directed all of my favorites of it. I mean, I love them all, and I would do anything with King. I would, if he has a phone book, I would direct that. Um, but just the experience of working with him, but The Shining, The Stand, Bag of Bones, three of my favorite novels, and just to be able to have all three of those in my career is like, what more could I ask for? How fucking greedy could I be? <laughs> well said. All right. <laughs> All right. Now, similar question, but involving the podcast. You're retiring the podcast tonight. Are there any Whitewell guests that you leave the podcast that you've chased for years that you haven't got to interview? And if so, would you be willing to come out of retirement for any of those uh, guests? <laughs> I, think, I think there's one. Well, there's one who's across the street right now at the Chinese theater. Interviewing Wait, Bradley is it, Cooper. Is it, is it Steven Spielberg or Bradley Cooper? <laughs> <laughs> Cooper, of course. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Steven Spielberg was my first boss as a screenwriter. What My first job as a screenwriter was writing for Amazing Stories. And then Batteries Not Included came from that, and then Hocus Pocus was a result of that. But um, Steven Spielberg definitely, I thought we had a good chance of doing it because he's always been quite responsive when I've been in touch with him and the like. But he also works a lot. And it, it just never really worked out. He and Sam Raimi are the two that I wished we'd been able to work into the schedule. And you know, the day before Toby Hooper died, we were talking about scheduling him on the show. So fortunately, we had the post-mortem TV show interview with him, and we were able to run that. And Caroline Williams was a part of that appreciation of Toby. And she's here tonight as well. <laughs> Who's next? Thank you very much. Uh, oh, it's was... Charlie Fleischer, the voice of Roger Rabbit. The voice of Roger Thank Rabbit, everybody. Charlie. Hi, Amit. When I was nine years old, I saw Attack of the Crab Monster and The Tingler. Nice and they both affected bill. me in both positive and negative ways. <laughs> uh, I enjoyed it, but then I was frightened for quite some time. My uh, first question is, was there a film that really frightened you when you were young and that stayed with you? Well, due to very good parenting, I went to the drive-in in 1960, and my sister is here, and she went with me. Um, in 1960, we went to see a little movie called Psycho. <laughs> I was seven or eight years old when it came out. Um, my sister Dee was uh, two years younger than me, almost three years younger than me. Uh, oh, she says much younger. <laughs> but um, yeah, that one, it was, Four people in the back, four kids in the back of a 1957 Chevy station wagon watching Psycho and just being, it scared the shit out of me, but in the most deliriously joyful way. Yeah, because you're scared, but you know it's safe because you're in your parents' car. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, it's the old saw about roller coasters, you know. The, uh, a, a horror movie's like a roller coaster. You get on, you get all the thrills and spills, but you know you're gonna get off of it safely. And that's at, sort of what that does. At what age did you know that your destiny was to be a, a master of horror as opposed to like doing Broadway shows? Well, I still don't think of myself as a master all right, of horror. let me rephrase but... that then. <laughs> well, first of all, you are. But <laughs> at what age did you know that you wanted to pursue a career that would allow you to create works that live in the dark. <laughs> um, you know, I always wanted to. I made eight millimeter movies when I was 12 years old, when I graduated from the seventh, from the eighth grade, I was given an eight millimeter movie camera. And I started playing around with it and making movies. I never for a moment imagined this kid from the San Fernando Valley would actually get an opportunity to write movies and, and then make movies. but. I really started my passion. Uh, my passion for movies and television goes way back. My grandmother used to call me Michael Allen TV. My middle name is Al. Mm. And uh, because I was so addicted to it. But um, it turned out, she used to say, where is all that gruesome stuff gonna get you? And I would love to be able to say the American Cinematheque at the Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> But I also want to say about Charlie, he's a brilliant artist and actor, but I'm reading his book, Out of My Mind, which is a collection of 10 short stories that are out of his mind in more ways than one. And it's really fascinating stuff, so I want to hype your book for you, Charlie. I appreciate that, thank you very much. And I hope you consider going back to Horse Feathers. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are two of the five here tonight, so. Our, our announcer, Jeff Gelb, has a question. Right down here, Chris. Thank you. Well, one thing that no one has mentioned tonight that I think warrants mentioning is how good a writer Mick is in terms of prose fiction. Prose fiction. Mick has a really unique voice as a writer, not only as a screenwriter, but as a person who writes novels. 
And I want to know if you've got another novel in you and what's going to happen next in that area of your life. Good question. Um, you know, I don't make a living on novels. Not many people do, but that doesn't matter at this point in my career. Um, I've got two stories I'm going to work on, one of them starting on Monday, and I haven't decided which one yet. And I'm also deciding, on Monday I will decide if what I embark on is a novel or if it's a screenplay. One of them is really not commercial, and the other one is could be considered commercial. So you can imagine that I will be starting on the former rather than the latter. <laughs> it is my want. But writing and having written is, is something that feels so good and so fulfilling, whether it gets sold or made or not. I am a writer first and foremost. And it's something I do. I, I go into my office, I do it, I, I walk out a few hours later and don't realize, oh my god, here's a stack. And, and it's just so much joy to create worlds and to be different people and, and to do that. And, and writing for the page is so much different from writing for the screen because you're writing with the love of language and the use of language and painting pictures with language, whereas in a screenplay, you're writing a blueprint. And yes, you can write really great, snappy, complex dialogue, but scene descriptions, you don't want to direct on the page because that just bogs down the reader. But writing for the love of language and the use of language and the beauty of language is the other side of the, the writer in me that needs to be indulged. I think we have time Roger for... Roger Avery. I think we have time for one more question. Oh, we can go over. <laughs> Mick, uh, it's Roger Avery. Hi, Roger I Avery. Salute Roger. you, first of all. We are in a really um, tough business, a brutal business, a really cutthroat business, and you kind of did the impossible, and so I want to know, how did you do it? How did you name your company Nice Guy Productions and then live up to that, to the point where everybody in this business where everybody's trying to kill each other loves you? So what advice can you give the rest of us? <laughs> Truth Tell in us, advertising. how did you do it? <laughs> Truth in advertising. I don't want to have to change the name of it to Asshole Productions. <laughs> but, you know, I, there are so many people in this room who do what we do who are really terrific people. My favorite people are creative people. And you don't have to have an artist's ego. That's just masturbation. That's just... Really, it's just making excuses for bad behavior. And I think human being first, artist second, is how I live my life. And I think that's, for me, you know, I, I don't judge how anybody else lives their life, but for me, I'd much rather be a good human than a good writer. But if I can be both, that's my fervent hope and what I've tried to do for the last many decades that I've been doing this. Oh. Thank you. All right, one more question. One more question, then we're going to wrap it up. Who's, who's going to be the last question on the last postmortem? Right up there. The furthest away from Chris as possible. That's absolutely possible. Hey, Mick, it's Emily. We met at BFON a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Hey. <laughs> How are uh, you? Hello. So, I, and I've learned so much about horror from you, thank you, over the years. And I want to say that I feel like we're in this incredible period of expansion in what stories are told in horror. It's really just a, an eye-opening, awe-inspiring time. And what I and maybe this is a great place to end. Where do you see horror going from here? Well, what's great is I, there's no way I know. But what I do know is the great thing that's happened is we are hearing voices from different genders, from different ethnicities, from different societies, from different cultures. And there are so many platforms that require material. And where I hope it's going is places I don't expect. The most exciting things, I mean, talk to me, is a supernatural thriller about teenagers. And you tell me that, and I'm probably going to skip it. I, can, I, I can tell you he would. <laughs> <laughs> but it's my favorite movie of the year. I think the Filippo brothers did, in their first feature film, made a sophisticated, exciting, genuinely frightening, deeply human movie. 
and it came from these you know, dude bros from Australia who go, really excited, Mick, we're on your show, you were doing the, you know. <laughs> and they made this fantastic movie, and I love these guys, and it's a unique voice telling a story that might otherwise have been told in a much more main, mundane way. And it's thrilling to me when you get different voices, different cultures, different ethnicities, different genders, all, all, all the people with a perspective of their own telling stories. That's what excites me, and that's what I hope continues to be next. So, this is not goodbye. This is goodbye to the postmortem podcast, but you haven't seen the last of me, and uh, I hope that's a good thing. <laughs> And thank you, producer Joe Russo. Thank you, Mick. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you to the postmortem, postmortem, and all of you. Thank you, Dread Central. Thank you, Beyond Fest. Thank you to the American Cinematheque. Thanks to our fans. And everybody, let's please thank Mick Garris. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.